The act of observing your mind is the single most important thing that you should do in your life. It is more important than sleep. It is more important than water. It is more important than food. In my opinion, it is the most important thing that you can do because it's going to control and govern the quality of your overall life. Great. I'm so glad that you're on the show. I was so excited about having you on today. And I just want to say thank you for your time, first and foremost. And uh, I am so grateful to have met you several weeks ago at a conference in Dallas. And we did get a chance to talk one-on-one -on -one for a little bit. And I loved your vibration. I love what you brought into the room, your energy. It was just phenomenal. So I'm I'm just so happy to have you here. Um, I am so Grateful to be here. And it was wonderful to meet you too. Thank you, Jill. You're welcome. Um, I just have to tell you something. Um, you, The second day after I met you, you got on stage and you you changed the room. Like you, you walked on stage and I think nobody really knew what to expect when you went up there. People were kind of chatting a little bit and you started talking and immediately I felt this shift this um like this journey you brought us on all together like you you had us you know stand up and close our eyes and you walked us through like this meditation and i i kind of opened my eyes a little bit which i probably shouldn't have but i looked because i was bawling my eyes out and there was not a dry eye in the room but it wasn't a sad feeling it was a feeling of deep connection, like with everybody else in the room, there was a couple hundred people there, by the way, a connection to myself, my spirit, the universe. I had chills from head to toe. So I won't forget that experience. And I think every single person walked out of that room differently than when they walked in that day. And it was an amazing experience. So I just want to share that with you. So thank you for that. I will never forget it. Thank you for the beautiful words. Oh my gosh, what a treat. And, you know, I remember that moment so vividly. It was so impactful because none of the words that were being conveyed in that moment on stage, but the remembrance that every single person was having, because I believe we all have this inner burning desire to have something, to be something, ultimately to achieve something in our life. And for so many people, we've forgotten or we've given up or we've lost hope or we believe it's possible. We just don't believe it's possible for us. And in that moment, it was such a gift for me to be able to remind people that that thing that's been placed on you, that's your responsibility to bring that forward. And that when you do that, you will achieve the highest and the greatest levels of joy and fulfillment and freedom and absolutely abundance. And so it's my responsibility to remind people of the divinity that lies within them. Well, you definitely did that that day. Um, what you know, when we've had our little one-on-one -on -one chat, you you a word sticks in my mind is anchor. You said, you know, if you feel stuck, there you have everyone has this anchor that they have to get rid of. So I would love to talk about that a little bit more about because um, you get a visual right of what that is. Um, how do you clear it? How do you um, how do you recognize what that is? I just want to kind of expand on that a little bit. 
So I want you to think about life like this, right? And I hope that this answers your question and serves your audience the best. Every single person is really on a journey. And I liken this journey to being on a boat. Maybe it's a fishing boat and you're wanting to go in a specific direction. But every single time something happens in your life, a situation comes up and you get stuck or you get beaten down or you get told you're not good enough or you're not worthy or you experience something and you process that as it's not going to happen for me. Maybe you don't have money. Maybe you don't have opportunity. Maybe you see other people that have opportunity and you think, well, that's okay for them. It's not okay for me. And the moment you have any of those situations or circumstances, now I want to, to, to ground this. This could be positive and or negative emotion. But when we experience heightened emotion, what we're doing is we're taking an emotional anchor and we're dropping it on that emotion. And then we're saying, got it. That's who I am. That's how I show up. That's how I react to situation and circumstance. And then we try and take our little boat and we want to go down the river or we want to go to the end of the horizon or we want to go to the other bay. But we're actually stuck with all the anchors that we've dropped off outside of our boat and we are pedaling and pedaling and oaring and oaring and using engines and anything in our power to try and propel us to a different direction. But we're never going to be able to get there unless we turn around and acknowledge that we've thrown these anchors off in the past. You know, my life story is no different than so many people that I come into contact with, but I didn't come from a tremendous amount of money. I came from a really small coastal town. I grew up on a tiny little island and we didn't have a tremendous amount of money. And so many people around me, they had extreme wealth. You know, my friends were given boats and cars and motorbikes as presents and toys. And, you know, I had to go and buy my own pair of shoes or I had to pay for my own school books, or I had to save up money so I could go on the class trip. You know, I started delivering newspapers at eight years old. I started working in a butchery, a bakery, a liquor store, and then eventually working in restaurants. And I started doing that at 11, 12 years old. We weren't even legally allowed to be working at that age, but I needed to have nicer things. I didn't want to wear those hand-me-down pants and the hand-me-down shoes. And so I took it on my own and I was like, well, if you know, if I want them, I'm going to have to go out and get them. And so I went and got jobs and I worked and, and that was my life. But what I didn't realize was I turned around and I viewed the world as, well, no one's going to give it to me. I'm going to have to go out there and make it happen. And I don't have opportunity. I don't have this privilege that my friends have and that that's just not the, the cards that were dealt for me. So I have to put my head down and I have to work and I have to make it happen. And so 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, every single weekend I was working and every summer vacation, every spring, you know, we would have very different vacation schedules and what we have in the US, they aren't these three months off, but we would get three weeks off at least every three, four months. And I would work every single day. So I never had vacations. I never had weekends. I never had time off. And when I was old enough to actually get a job legally, then I would work in restaurants and I would wait tables. So then that would even mean nights during the week. It would be a Monday or a Wednesday or a Thursday night in addition to what I was already doing on the weekends. And that was just what I did because I wasn't going to accept not having enough. But I also didn't believe that I was good enough. I didn't believe that I was worthy and I dropped an anchor in Rudy's not good enough. And that if Rudy is going to make anything happening in his life, it's going to be through the grind. It's going to be through the hustle. It's going to be through making it work. And so that was my anchor that I dropped in the past. And then that held me into that belief. So those were the behaviors and the actions that I took. 
I want to give you another example because this one's pretty profound. At six years old, I walked into school and it was my first or second grade in school. And the teacher said, oh, I know you. And she recognized my brother in my face. And she said, you're Carl's brother. And I said, yeah. She says, well, if you're just as stupid as your brother, you'll spend the whole year in the dunce's chair. That's where we put the dumb kids. And in that moment, I realized there was a teacher, an authority figure that recognized stupid. And she labeled me stupid. She told me, you're stupid. And then she put me in a chair that was not the, the chair where all the other kids were sitting in their desks. It was a little bar stool. And then a little red hat that had the word dunce written on it. And then I had to wear a stupid hat and sit on a stupid chair. And then all the other kids were staring at me. And in their eyes, I could see terror. And I processed that as, oh, they're looking at stupid. That's what stupid looks like. And, oh, the teacher must be smart because she teaches kids. And so she must know what stupid looks like. And so I dropped an anchor into, well, that's what stupid looks like. And so I never studied. I never showed up for school. I never believed I was good enough. I was the class clown. I would never do homework. I was always in trouble. I must have been the most annoying and difficult person to hang around with at that time because I was compensating because I believed I was stupid. I was compensating because most of the kids in my school were very wealthy. You know, in South Africa, it's a small town, but it's kind of reminiscent to Orange County. You know, you have extreme wealth and then you have you know, the low middle class. And we were definitely on the, the low middle class side. And so in comparison to their level of wealth, I just processed that as, oh, well, of course I'm stupid. Oh, well, of course I don't have privilege because I'm Rudy and I never, ever bothered to try. So now fast forward in my 20s, I started to believe that I wasn't smart. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't worthy. And so when I was in relationships, I let the girlfriends cheat on me. I let the girlfriends talk badly to me. I had abusive relationships that were, you know, emotionally and verbally abusive, but I tolerated them because I didn't believe I was good enough. I had business relationships where I let people walk all over me. I had friends, literal best friends, steal $20,000, $30,000, $15,000 from me, make all the excuses in the world why they didn't know where it was or how they could get it back. And you know what? I stayed their friends because I didn't believe I was good enough. And it wasn't until I was 25 years old, 25 years old, I sat on a couch in my brand new loft apartment. I lived in the top of the building. I owned the first the top two floors. I had a sports car in my garage downstairs. I owned three businesses. I employed 40 people. And at 25, 26 years old, I sat there and I thought, hang on a minute. I cannot be stupid if I've done all this because no one gave this to me. And that's when I started to turn back, pick up the anchors and ask myself, who can I be? Who am I? Am I really stupid? And what if I'm not stupid? And that was the beginning of the process. The reason I say that this is so important is if you've thrown anchors into the ground, and that is holding you back into a past experience, a past trauma, or a past memory of what your life is, you're making decisions from that vantage point. At 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, you don't remember the moment when you drop the anchor, but your brain remembers how you respond to any similar situation and automatically makes that decision for you on your behalf. And so you continue to make decisions. From Avani's point of, oh, well, I'm not smart or I don't deserve better until you start picking up the anchors or you reframe how you view them. So everyone that hears this always thinks, what? I've got to go back and pick up all these heavy anchors. I've got to go through all that pain. And the reality is, Jill, we don't. All we have to do is acknowledge there is an anchor. What was the emotion? What is the behavior? And then we get to let it go.
You just let it go. And then you pick a new thought, a new feeling, build a new belief system. And I promise you, when you do the work, your life changes in the most beautiful and miraculous way because you start making decisions from a very different place in your brain. You're more courageous. You're more confident. You allow inspiration and divinity to come in. And then your life starts to transform. And you realize all of what you have, you know, you could have had 20, 30, 40 years ago, well, at least in my instance. And um, I really, I, I love helping people to be able to do the same. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. Um, you know, so I went through a similar situation as you when you were 25, but I was 43 at the time. You know, I just kind of woke up one day and I said, there's got to be more. I have to start either feeling better about myself or I'm done. Like, this is not good anymore. So I appreciate this talk about transformation and it can occur at any point in your life. And boy, I do wish that I could have realized this when I was 20 instead of 43. But so what kind of advice would you give to somebody who is at any age, I was going to say young, but at any age where they're just not happy, they feel stuck. They're just, you know, they're living every day, that same old story. They're telling themselves the same old story about their past. What advice would you give them where to start? That's such a great question. The first thing I want to acknowledge is that every single person that is not happy with what is happening in their life right now, they take it very personally because they are the ones that are experiencing what's happening in their life. So if you're listening to this and you have a bad marriage, right, it feels really personal to you because it's your marriage. Or if you're listening to this and you don't have money in your bank account, well, that feels very personal to you because you're limited in your possibilities to spend money or to do things that create freedom. And so it feels very personal, but it's not personal. It's information. If you look at every single thing that is happening in your life right now, everything that's transpiring as information, as facts, right. then it doesn't feel very personal. And when it doesn't feel very personal, you separate yourself from the situation. You see, because every time we experience something, it produces a thought. A thought then produces a feeling. The knock-on effect is thoughts produce feelings. Thoughts and feelings drive behavior. So if you're unhappy in your marriage, you're unhappy about your bank account, you're unhappy about your opportunity, you are limited in whatever capacity, well, now that's going to produce emotions, feelings around unhappiness, unfulfillment. It's not fair, victimization. And so you make decisions from the vantage point of feeling like a victim. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're feeling like, well, you know, that really sucks for me. Well, then that has the victimization feeling because you see that sucks for me. Like I don't have control. I don't have any power. So when you make decisions, you're making it from a disempowered place. But if you can turn around and say, okay, hang on a minute. So if I don't have the marriage that I want, why do I not have the marriage that I want? Well, my partner doesn't talk to me nicely. Great. What am I doing to add to that? That's just information. And so if I'm adding something, what could I change? And if I could change something, which you could, then what would that be that you could change? You don't have money in your bank account. Okay. Well, what could you do that would be different? What patterns, behaviors, what things do you do that support you in never having money? Maybe you drink. Maybe you don't work. Maybe you work uh, part-time. Maybe you have thoughts of money doesn't grow on trees. Maybe you have thoughts that you know money is the root of all evil. All of these questions are allowing you to connect to what is it that you think or feel on that particular topic. And so if I were working with anybody that's going through anything right now, the first thing I would do is say, tell me about how you feel about where you're at. 
And then they would start talking. And in that, I would hear the words, the terminology of how they are describing their situation, their life. And that's going to bring up a tremendous amount of emotion. Most people go into not telling you, but defending their position. And the more they defend their position, the more they're putting a stake in the sand, anchoring that anchor further and further and further in the ground and saying, this is where I'm at. And this is what it is. And then it's because of this reason and this situation. And it's happened again and again. And they keep justifying it. And every time they do that, they pour more emotion, which is more fuel to stay in that place. Mm -hmm. And so it continues to have this raging emotional fire inside them that says, you know, I'm a victim or it's not good enough or it's not worthy. And if you can separate yourself from the situation by just saying everything that's happening around me is information, and it means that I've done something or tolerated something or um, not done something that has put me in the position that I'm in. And so if I did something different, what would the result be? Now you're thinking logically, you're thinking with reason, you're thinking with the ability to access inspiration and intuition, and you start making very different decisions. You don't feel like you're personally attached to it. And so you start to analyze. And when you analyze, you can make very different thought impulses. So you're not drawing from an automatic response. You're now thinking it, you know, logically, what would I do differently? And then you make that decision. When people start doing that, I say this all the time, and, and I don't think people understand the value of this as much as as they should. And, and I urge people to do it. When you look at all information around you as simply just information, anything you're experiencing is information, and then you analyze that information as if it were data, and then you make a different decision based on the data. What you're essentially doing is allowing your brain to look at more information, process more information, and no longer run a default belief or a default reaction to how you would have responded when you were six years old and someone called you stupid. And so let's go back to Rudy sitting at 25, 26 years old in his loft apartment. And he's sitting there thinking, hang on a minute, like I've just moved into this incredible apartment. I paid for this. I bought it. Nobody else. Mm -hmm. Like I cannot be stupid. In that moment was the first time I stopped acting like I had to hustle and grind and be a victim and that my life was hard. I sat there and I thought, hang on am I stupid? Like really? And that was a real question. And I was like, I cannot be stupid. So I looked around and I was like, if I could create this, if I could go out and do this, there has to be a part of me that's smart. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I looked at it as information and then said, if I am smart, how, what am I smart at? So I started going through almost like a Rolodex of information. Well, I could do this. I could do that. Then the next day when I went into meetings and I came up with a brilliant idea or I thought of a new campaign or I started a new section of the business, then I would stack that evidence and say, oh, I came up with that. I have to be smart. Oh, I did this. I have to be. Oh, look at these people that come to work every day and turn to me for support, advice, counsel. I have to be smart. And so now I started making decisions from a position of thinking, well, I am smart. Well, now, what does that look like when you start showing up as if you are smart versus, oh, I'm stupid and I can't do that? It changes the energy of how you show up and life starts to become very easy. Now, I did create a lot of wealth at a very young age. And you could say I did that believing I was stupid. And I want people to hear this. I would have created significantly more wealth, much easier in a shorter amount of time 
had I viewed my life as, wow, I'm wicked smart and I can figure out anything and I'm good and I just have to be focused and dedicated. And so that's what I want people to do is to take a look at anything and everything that's happening in their life right now and remove the emotion and just ask themselves as if they're analyzing it. How do I feel? Why do I feel that way? If I could, what could I change? I want to add one more thing. If you're going to go and do this work, there's one more question. And this is probably one of the most powerful questions that you could ever, ever, ever ask. And that is, is it even true? Most people hate something in their life because they have a belief around that. Hate is a word I rarely use. If you spend enough time with me, you'll know I don't like that word. It very rarely leaves my lips because I believe the term hate is the emission of love. And I don't believe that we can ever be without love because we are love. We come from love. And so when I say hate, it's where someone has a tremendous amount of negative emotion wrapped around a thought or an idea or a belief or a person or a situation or a circumstance. And when they hate something, they're emitting anything and everything from that one moment. And half the time, it's not even real. It's not even true. And so people could say something like, I'm never going to be successful, or I hate this part of my life, or this person hates me, or I don't like this, or I'm never going to create that, or these opportunities just are not. And if you insert the sentence, is that even true? So, so many times I'll hear somebody say to me, oh, you know, I come from a really small town. I don't have a lot of opportunity. There's really nothing for me to do. I can't turn anywhere. I don't have what they have in other cities or with other people that have all this money or all these brains or all the smarts. And I say, is that even true? And can you verify that 100% in a court of law with facts? Because if there's any other possibility, then it means that that is not true. It's not a hundred percent true. So if someone says to me, oh, well, I, I could never do that. I say, is there a possibility where you could? And what would it look like if you could? And then I make them come up with an example of how it could happen. So if someone says to me, oh, I'm never going to have money. I'm like, okay, I could see why you would believe that in your current situation. But let me ask you a question. Is that even true? Well, yes, it is based on my current situation. I'm like, okay, well, is it possible that tomorrow I don't know, you could make a million dollars. And they say, never, no way. And I'm like, okay, let's play a game. I want you to give me five ways that you could. Mm -hmm. Make up five outrageous ways that you could make a million dollars tomorrow. And then they will come up with five outrageous ways, like winning the lottery, you know, tripping over a shoebox in a field or whatever it is. And then I say, <laughs> okay, so we can agree it's possible now. Mm -hmm. And the minute we start to look at it as it's possible, we realize there are more possibilities of achieving anything and everything that we want than there are the beliefs that we have that say it's not possible. And all we need to do is focus. I'm going to use the term again that you started the conversation with today. Throw the anchor into possibility, not holding you back into the one thing that says it's not possible. Right. I, I love this. And, you know, if you peel apart, you, you mentioned the word hate and then you know, all of these people saying that it's not possible to do something, that negative talk, it, it brings um, my thoughts to the four agreements, the book, the four agreements, you make an agreement with yourself and you, that contract that you wrote whenever back when you were really young saying that you are a certain type of person or you 
um, or you're not a certain type of person, you you follow your entire life based on that agreement. And you could, all you have to do is change that agreement with yourself. And a lot of times it comes from fear, like that hate inside. It's not, it's not the, I don't think it's the opposite of love. I think it's, it's what it is, is this fear. You're afraid of something. So you have to peel that apart and figure out why are you afraid? Like if you say you can't do it, something's not possible. Like there's, you have a fear and you're not looking at it through a lens of love. And that's how I look at it. I am curious to know at what point did you decide to make that shift to help people figure out who they are and empower them to be their best selves? That is a brilliant question, but I think it's because the answer is going to speak into something so much more beautifully than the initial question. I knew who I was at 16 years old. I was in high school and a teacher invited one of the parents of one of the students to come in and speak. And they called a special assembly. It was a Wednesday and I'll never forget it being a Wednesday because we never did assembly on a Wednesday. And so we all had a meet in this room and I was sitting on a wooden floor in the gymnasium and this gentleman walked in and he was wearing a blue pinstripe suit. And I still thought, man, this guy looks so sharp. Like he looks like money. And this guy took the stage and he was so charismatic and the way he just spoke and the words and the power and the awe that I had for the, what this man was doing on that stage. And it felt like the entire room went pitch dark and every single teacher left the stage. Every student left the room. It was him and it was me and it was him and it was me. And in that moment, I was like, that is what I am going to do with my life. I felt to me like this higher power, you know, I call it God call it whatever you want, mm -hmm. came down, tapped me on the shoulder and was like, Rudy, tap, tap, tap. this is what you're going to do with your life. And every single fiber of my body and being was electrified. Every hair stood at attention. And I just knew I was going to move people from a stage and I would do that the rest of my life. But I was 16 years old and inevitably this gentleman finished talking and the lights came back on and the teachers came back on stage and all the other kids came back in the room and and then I came back to my senses. And what I mean by that is all of my limiting beliefs, all of my anchors, all of my unworthiness, all of the doubt that I had came flooding back into that room. And the very next thought I had after he left was, well, that's just not possible for me because I'm stupid, remember? And I'm broke and I don't come from money and I don't come from talent. And I remember vividly having this thought in my head Oh, well, she's got a beautiful singing voice. He's a brilliant uh, mathematician. Oh, he's so athletic. He's this and she's that. And I was like, what am I? And I remember thinking like, how is it possible that I don't have a talent? Like, how can God give everyone something and skip me? And I, that was the belief I had that I had nothing. There was no talent that I had in my body. And so that was my vantage point. So when you believe that you're nothing and that you don't come from anything and that you have nothing to give, how could you possibly walk out on stage and deliver any semblance of value? And so it took me 20 years from when I sat in that room, 20 years, 20 long, painful years where I knew why I was put on this earth to start doing it. At 36 was the first time I started speaking, coaching, supporting, and developing individuals intentionally. And it actually took my wife to arrange a, a event without telling me 
and then planned everything and people started showing up and she said, so you're speaking. And I was like, you did what? And she was like, you've got this baby. This is what you're meant to do. And here's the thing. I believed at 16 years old, if I was going to speak on stage and I was going to write books or I was going to impact and inspire people, I needed to do something worthy of their attention. I needed to do something that when they saw me, they didn't see the guy that was dumb or broke or not good enough or wasn't smart enough that they saw, oh, well, this guy's successful. So I set out to make money. And at 25, I already had money. I had three businesses. I had a million dollars in the bank. I had a sports car, the penthouse. I had the things you would think would make you look successful but I still felt like an insecure little six-year-old sitting on a dancer's chair in a teacher's classroom. And so I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't think it was worthy. So I worked harder. I worked more. I kept building more, more evidence of, am I worthy? What do I add value in? And that was the beginning of that process for me from around 25, 26, which took me at least 10 years before I had the courage to start following at least some of the inspiration that I had that was growing inside of me. And then my wife arranged these events where people would show up and I would start to speak. And at first it was two people and then it was six and 10. And then eventually just grew and grew and grew. And we did 50 something of these events. I think it was like 54 of these events over two years. And it was beautiful. And it gave me the confidence and the courage to start doing what I was doing. And the thing I want people to take away from that is I already had everything I needed when I was 16. and Sure, I couldn't walk into a million-dollar business or a billion-dollar business at 16 years old and give them business advice. I do that today, but today I have the ability to go in and do that because I have the business inside. I have the acumen. I've worked in these, these organizations and in my own companies, and so I have that today, but I absolutely could have stood on a stage and impacted, inspired, and empowered people to move from limiting beliefs to what's possible. I've been an advocate of self-help and development and growth and spiritualism and understanding and meditation. I have mastered the ability to control my thoughts, my feelings. I have the ability to hone what it feels like to be me so that when I walk into a room, I am the most empowered version of who I am so that when I'm in that room, I can do the best that I can. But I lived for 20 more years believing I wasn't good enough and I wasn't worthy. And I want to liken it to this. If you were to put your hand over an open flame and your hand starts to burn, the immediate logical reaction would be take your hand off the flame. Mm -hmm. Right. And then if I say to somebody, why would you take your hand off the burning flame? And I say, well, I don't want to get burned. I'm like, okay, why don't you want to get burned? Well, I don't want to be hurt. I'm like, okay, so it makes sense when your hand is over a flame. But when you've got a desire to have something, be something and do something, and you don't feel like you're worthy and you're not good enough, there's pain there, but you keep your hand on the pain. You keep your heart on the pain. When you're in an unhappy relationship, you don't confront the relationship. I don't mean aggressively. I mean, beautifully with kindness, with compassion, with love. You don't, you don't confront it because it's painful. So you stay in the pain when you're not healthy. You continue to do things that are unhealthy and you continue to stay in pain until eventually the pain gets so bad, so unbearable that eventually life situational circumstance forces you to take your hand off the flame. Mm -hmm. I lived for 20 years in that pain of not feeling good enough, not feeling worthy and knowing what I came here to do. 
Most people don't know what they came here to do. Most people have their entire body literally in that flame and they're screaming bloody murder, but they will not stop and ask the right questions. Why am I here? What's on my heart? If I could do anything, what would it be? Who would I be? How do I want to feel? Where do I want to go? If I could change something, what would I change? If I could change something small and I did it every single day, what would that look like? If I could compound an action, where would I be? You know, I get to talk to some of the most incredible people in the world today doing what I do. I met a gentleman recently. He's become a really good friend of mine. And three years ago, he didn't have a job. Three years ago, he didn't have money in his bank account. Three years ago, he didn't have relationships and he was miserable and unhappy. Today, he's one of the biggest celebrities on the planet. This guy has a massive following, best-selling book, biggest podcast in the world. He's doing unspeakable things, unbelievable things out in the world. None of that was possible three years ago. And when I ask him, what did you do? He's like, I just made a decision. And then every day I took one step, one step. And if you compound those steps, you get to turn around three years later and say, look at what I've achieved. Look at what I grew. And so where would Rudy be today if he didn't wait until he was 26 or 36 before he started? What if I started at 16? Maybe I would have started speaking at 21 or 22. And here's where I want to ground it. I don't believe our lives are about us. I know that I lived for pain for 20 years, believing I wasn't good enough and I wasn't worthy. And that really sucked for me. And that sucked for a lot of people around me because if you're unhappy, you cannot support other people to be happy. But I know what it feels like to be living my purpose. I know what it feels like to be happy, to be abundant, to be joyful, to feel like I'm in control of my reality and what I do and where I go. And that when I walk into a room, my responsibility is to impact the people in that room. But I believe that my life isn't about me. My life is that when I finally achieve that highest and greatest potential of who I am, that I'm then prepared to turn around and uplift, inspire, and impact the world around me. You beautifully opened up today's interview talking about your experience of meeting me on stage. And I came into a room and shifted the entire mood and the energy of that room. That's only possible when I know who I am, when I know what I'm meant to do. And when I walk into a room, I'm very clear and specific about what it is that I'm meant to do. When I walk off a stage, and I've just left a few hundred people and everyone's been crying, not because they're sad, but because they remember who they are. They remember what they've come here to do or come here to be, or they are just celebrating themselves, their life. That fuel is reignited within them and they are ready to take committed action towards a dream or a desire. I don't walk off that stage happy, joyful, jumping up and down. I'm so grateful and I'm filled with love and joy, but there's always this moment where I think, man, what would it have looked like if I'd started 20 years earlier and how many more people could I have impacted had I not been caught up in my own victim story, my own feeling sorry for myself, my own limiting beliefs with all those anchors defining who I was because it was so much easier to say, oh, poor me, than it is to say, what could I do right now? And I just want people to hear that. The thing that they have on their heart, that dream, that goal, that desire, it is their responsibility to shift that forward. When you do that, you're going to live the most abundant, joyful life. And then you're going to be impacting all of these people around you. And nothing in the world is going to give you more fulfillment than doing that every single day. Oh, I love this so much. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I have so many questions. So I think of, first I want to ask you, you're, 
you're so authentic, right? You, you, I've seen you on stage. I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with you. You're just very transparent, real, authentic. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about you. And the question I have is when you get up there on the stage and you are who you are, is there ever that self-doubt? Does it ever creep in now? Or is that completely gone? Do you have, do you ever think, how did I get here? And why am I here? And why are, the, are these people actually going to listen to me? Do you ever think about that? I, I do think about that because I want to acknowledge, you know, we're all human beings and human beings come with their own set of flaws, their own limiting beliefs. And it's not that you should never have those limiting thoughts. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's how long do you stay there? You know, okay. if we look at someone like Elon Musk, who has achieved just the impossible, right? This man has more money than anyone else. He's created all of these incredible companies he has reinvented literally every industry that he has touched. Uh, we're leaving Twitter up for debate, but every one of these companies he's gone into, he has created an unbelievable shift and he constantly pushes and drives forward. I'm telling you now that that man has more doubt than anyone else. That man questions himself more than anyone else, but he doesn't stay in question. He doesn't stay in doubt because he's stacked enough evidence that when he trusts himself, when he brings in the right people, they make the right decisions, they move forward. When he makes a mistake, it's not failure. It's just another step towards where he's going. I do not, because your question was very specific. When I walk out on stage, am I in that moment having doubt? No, absolutely not. Because in that moment, I am ready. I am focused. I am committed. And it's not about Rudy. It's about everybody that's in that room. But before I walk out on stage, do I have doubt every time? Do I have doubt when I leave? Every time. I doubt, oh, did I do enough? Did I say enough? Did I give them enough? Was there enough value? Oh, I could have done this. I could have said this. And, and it's my responsibility to trust that what I did was enough. What they got was what they needed to get in that moment. Can we do better? Every time. Could we prepare more? Every time. But it's, it's not about the doubt. It's about how quickly do you shift from that doubt and start taking action. I stack evidence every single day for anything that I do. And every time I achieve something that I've set the goal or the intention to do, I celebrate it. And I want people to get into the habit of stacking evidence, meaning we're putting anchors into you get things done. You are successful. You are smart. You are brilliant. You are lovable. Whatever that is. My wife says to me, oh, baby, I love you. And inside, I'm like, yes, I'm lovable. <laughs> when my kids tell me that I'm adorable or I'm the best daddy in the world, mm -hmm. I'm inside, yes. Now, you'll notice I do this move. Every time, it's like a little sideways punch, and that's my like, whoo. <laughs> if I'm in a grocery store, I've told this story more times than I can count. This actually happened. Jill, I was in a grocery store. My phone rang. I grabbed the phone, put it on my ear. It was around 8, 7.30, 8 in the morning. And it was someone I had spoken to weeks before. I'd forgotten about the conversation. I wasn't expecting a follow-up phone call. And they said to me, hey, I just wanted to let you know we've signed up for whatever package or thing that we had spoken to you about and we've made the transfer. The money should be in your account. And it was a lot of money. And so I ended the call and I was like, oh, that's fantastic news. I'm really excited to be able to support you. And you know, we end the call and I'm in a grocery store. At 7.30, 8 a.m., I have a can of baked beans in my one hand. I've got a phone against my ear. I drop the can of baked beans into the cart, and I go, Whoop! 
<laughs> right? And everyone looked at me and there weren't a lot of people, but the people that were there looked at me like I was mad because it's <laughs> seven in the morning, 7.30, eight o'clock. And here I am screaming in a grocery store. And I was like, uh, I don't care. I just got a deposit into my account. I got somebody who says, I believe you. I want you to do business with me. I trust what you're doing. And I'm like, that's a lot of things to celebrate. Money comes quickly and easily to me. Clients come quickly and easily to me. You know, and in that moment, I was so caught up in it that I didn't care who was around me. Right. And I do that all day long. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. I am stacking and celebrating success again and again and again and again. And here's the reason why. When something comes up in my life, I immediately turn around when I get anxious, nervous, cautious, I'm I'm insecure. I go into my mind and I'm like, hang a minute, can I do this? And I'm reminded, yes, you can. Every single time you take a step, you take an action, you're met with success. Every time I get a review, I celebrate the review. Every time I get a positive comment, I get a thank you note. I meet someone and they tell me I've supported them or I've changed their life. That is not just a fleeting conversation. That is a profound moment where I take it in. I absorb that and I use that as further evidence that when I walk out on that stage or I pick up that phone or I get onto an interview or I go and meet someone or I'm sitting down to write a book or I'm creating a course or I'm speaking to an organization, that it is going to be successful and people need to stack more and more and more success because there's so much success for them to look at if they just looked. So you take those little wins that you get, no matter how big or small, they could be really, really tiny and you stack them up and therefore you are creating more self-worth in your own head, right? You're, you're saying, I can do this. If I can do this win, I can have that win and it could get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think along with that is gratitude, right? I'm sure you, I've heard a million times, you know, just be grateful for those little tiny wins and it'll come back to you tenfold. I I want to explain that slightly differently. You can say I'm grateful and that's not going to change anything in your life if you don't change your approach to why you're doing the process. Because you can say, oh, I'm so grateful for my abundance but you know you have no money. right? You could say, I'm so grateful for my health, but you know there's a cancer diagnosis or whatever illness that you're suffering from. And you're not going to change because you don't believe it. You're not committed to it. It's not changing your physiology. You're having a moment in your mind and you're saying, I am this, or I believe this, or I'm grateful for this. And it's not doing anything if you don't physically go in and alter and change your makeup. So let me explain it to you this way. The human brain is so complicated that it's so simple Mm -hmm. because the human brain's looking for efficiencies. And so it's constantly running the supercomputer and then it simplifies the complicated and makes it extremely streamlined. Mm -hmm. And so you have a thought as a child where you get told you're stupid and it says, how did that feel? How did you react? What were the emotions that went through your body? And then what decisions did you make after that? Oh, so your shoulders went forward, your palms got sweaty, your heart was accelerated, you looked down, you you didn't think you were good enough. So when somebody asked you, do you want to play at lunchtime? You said no. Okay, so that's how you show up. Fast forward 10 years, 20 years later, 
you're in a situation and somebody says, hey, man, I've got this great opportunity. Would you like to come work for me? Or let's go into business partnership. Or, oh, my gosh, I think you're cute. I'd love to marry you. And then you look down at the floor and you shake your head and you think, yeah, no, I don't think I should. And, you know, it probably won't work out. You're not actually logically, consciously making that decision. There's a subconscious program that's overriding that decision and it's doing it for you. So if you just slap on a I'm grateful on top of that, you haven't changed any of that unconscious, subconscious behavior that's running in the background. All of what we've spoken about today, about picking up the anchors, going back, looking at the past, that is bringing your mind back to being conscious. You're taking control of the unconscious patterns or behaviors. The brain has created efficiencies for everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever felt. They've grouped them into similar patterns, and so it knows how you're going to react and respond. 95% of everything that an adult does over the age of 35 is unconscious, 95%. So you're not even in control of your life right now, unless you are logically present and aware of what it is that you're doing. So every single day, I decide how am I going to feel today? How am I going to react today? How am I going to respond away? Who do I want to be today? That is a conscious choice. And then when I make that decision, now I elevate my emotional state. I say things to myself like, I am powerful. I am incredible. I am abundant. I am smart. I am this. I am that. I am grateful for the abundance, the opportunity, the freedom. And then I feel it. I make my body elevate in an emotional state. And I do this through a process of meditation. Well, quiet my mind. I will release stress and fear and anxiety. I will become very calm, very relaxed. And then in that moment, I elevate my emotional state. I stack the evidence and I pull from evidence of every time I've walked out on stage, every time I've got a standing ovation, every time I've had people come up to me and say, oh my gosh, that was incredible. That was brilliant. That was amazing. And I feel every one of those in my calm meditative state elevate the emotion so that every cell in my body is electrified. Every cell in my body is vibrating at its highest frequency possible. And then I insert the feeling of I'm grateful, I'm joyful. And the magic then is I will bring in a, an image from the future that hasn't yet happened. My goal, and I share this openly, is to speak on stage in front of 85,000 people. And I want to do that 40 weeks a year. That's my goal. And I want to do that to 103. And so I've got a long life left to live because I'm going to make up for all the years that I didn't do what I should have been doing. And, and I'm going to be playing catch up. So I've got big, big goals. Well, I haven't spoken in front of 85,000 people at one time. So how do you know what that looks like? How do you know what that feels like? Well, you don't. So in my mind, in my meditative state, I don't think, oh, I want to speak in front of 85,000 people and then magically go to that. Well, I can't make that jump because I've never been there. I've never done that. I've never experienced that. That's like saying you're sick, pretend you're healthy. Well, you, you, you cannot just pretend. So you've got to, in your mind, release the negative, release the insecurities, release the stress and the, and the worries, come back to a calm and centered state, then elevate your emotional state. Start having these feelings, and I call them fantasies, which is just a visual image along with the heightened emotion. So the image and the emotion are equal. And then your body starts to change. You start to feel abundant, expansive, excited, motivated. And then I bring in a thought of 85,000 people. Then I bring in the thought of what would it feel like to walk out on stage and just see a sea of people. And they are all open and ready and receptive and eager and excited. 
I then imagine with my eyes closed, what would it look like if I was doing a guided meditation to 85,000 people and they standing in front with their hands on their hearts and there's tears streaming down their faces and they've got this look on their faces like they're in love with their life. And then I'm like, oh my God, that feels so good. And I take a snapshot of that in my mind. And then I say, I'm so grateful for that thought. I'm grateful for that feeling. Now the gratitude's working. Because what I've done is I've released all the other things that were anchoring me. I've elevated my state. There's scientific research that proves that when you go into a meditative state, you release the old, you release your attachment to who you were, and you connect to who you really are without motion, void of any outside influence. And then you bring in heightened states of emotion. It changes your physical body. So if you took a scan of who your body was before meditation, and then you take a scan of your body after meditation, scientifically, you're not the same person because you've changed. And if you can change the physiology, change your body, change the vibrational frequency of every atom inside your body, every cell inside your body, you're now vibrating at happy, you're vibrating at healthy, you're vibrating at joy, abundance, freedom. And so when you open your eyes and you look at the real world, you're starting to make decisions from that state and your decisions are more empowered. They're more in line with what you want than who you used to be. And your life starts to change. And if you do that every single day and you do it again and again and again, one day you're going to turn around just like my friend and it'll be three years later. You'll be a superstar. You'll have all this money, all this fame, all this you know, following. And then in addition to that, the guy's getting married to the love of his life. He's got a puppy. He's got his, his, his entire world, his relationships. Everything has come together and it has to start somewhere. So that's my advice is, is, you know, don't just say I'm really grateful, be grateful, live grateful, step into a state where you change your physiological state, and then you're going to be met with more evidence to stack that you are grateful. And then just keep building that in every moment. And then throughout your day, you're like, I am grateful. I am this. Oh, it is working. And then that's how you start to shift your life. I, yeah, I, I love everything that you said, um, especially about how important the meditation is in your life um, and how it can make such a drastic shift. I was, I used to be one of those people that when somebody said, talked about meditation, it's like, oh, I can't do that. My mind won't stop moving. Like I just think too much, you know, I just can't stop for two seconds. I used to be one of those people. And once I adapted a new way of thinking and I thought, let me, let me see if this meditation thing has, something and it I couldn't do it right away I it's it's not an easy thing for somebody whose mind just goes non-stop to actually shut it down completely but once I learned how to do it it became addicting like what you talked about um feeling the cells in your body actually change I I can feel it and my mind is clearer and I have focus. I know who I am. And for the first time in so many years, I have clarity. And it's like this outer, um, it's like an outer experience. Somebody actually telling me, no, Jill, this is the direction you need to go in. Finally, once I could shut my brain down. So is that one, if somebody wanted to change their lives, they, they see this, they see the show and they say, you know what? I'm ready for a change. I'm really ready to make a, a difference in my life. Is meditation the first thing that you would say for them to, to adapt? I want to answer your question slightly differently. 
Meditation is where you start, absolutely. But meditation has a stigma attached to it, right? We we believe that meditation is reserved for a monk sitting somewhere in the Himalayas and it's reserved for a select few, very, very enlightened people. And that's not very true. Meditation is the act of observing your mind. So when you have a busy mind, mm -hmm. you're paying attention to the thoughts in your mind. And if you are thinking a thought, so you're sitting still, eyes closed, taking in really deep breaths in, deep breaths out, you're oxygenating the blood, you're thinking clearly, rationally, logically, you're sitting there and you think, oh my gosh, I've got to uh, go and get the car serviced. I've got to rotate the tires. And you're trying to meditate. Now you're like, oh, damn it. Why am <laughs> I thinking about? Well, that's the, that's the act of meditation right there. So you're thinking and worrying and stressing about the car needs to be serviced, the tires need to be rotated, or you've got to cut the lawn, or you've got to hire renew this, or you've got to go and do that thing. That's the thought that's happening in your mind over and over and over. So when you're meditating, you're being aware of what are the thoughts. So when you think of rotating the car tires, getting the car serviced, just let go of the thought. And what I mean by that is I'm like, okay, I have to service the car. Great. Thank you. And I let the thought go. Now the thought doesn't come back. Not that thought. Because I've acknowledged the thought, so the thought goes away. Or I will say, remind me at 10 a.m. And I let it go. Your brain will remind you at 10 a.m. It is a supercomputer. Wow. Then the next thought that comes in could be, um, yeah, I'm really worried about you know this thing that's coming up tomorrow. And there's the magic. Because now you, you're focusing on, oh, I'm really worried. So you're living in a state of worry. What are you worried about? You're worried about your bank account. You're worried about your job. You're worried about the deal. You're worried about the next thing. You're worried about whatever, whatever. And those are the thoughts that are controlling your mind. But if you don't spend time just trying to sit in the still and paying attention to what's going on in your mind, you're not conscious. You're unconscious. So your brain's making decisions unconsciously. And so you're staying in a state of worry or stress or whatever the thought is. But if you can just sit quietly 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and just pay attention to what it is that you're thinking and let each thought go, you're going to have an idea of where does your mind go most often? What are the thoughts that you're having most often? Now you have information to analyze, to study, to say, is that even true? Could I change that? Is that something, you know, I'm worrying about this, but is that ever going to even happen? And if you change that thought, you don't have to have the thought again and again and again and again. I want to be very specific. The act of observing your mind is the single most important thing that you should do in your life. It is more important than sleep. It is more important than water. It is more important than food. In my opinion, it is the most important thing that you can do because it's going to control and govern the quality of your overall life. I sit in meditation for an hour, sometimes two hours, sometimes 10 minutes. It really depends on what I have going on in my day. And when I can spend some time in my mind and I control my thoughts and feelings and I release all stress, fear, and anxiety and I get back to a center, calm state, I now know what it feels like to be Rudy, not Jill, not Frank, not Bob, no one else, Rudy, what it feels like to be Rudy in a calm, quiet state. And I'm like, oh, that's what I feel like. And I just sit there a minute. And then I elevate that emotional state to something, 85,000 people, you know, having breakthroughs, abundance, beautiful vacations with my wife and kids and meeting new people and clients and opportunity and, and partnerships. And I'm like, this feels so abundant, so joyful, so expansive. And then I put a pin in that emotion and it's like, I anchor that and I just want to stay there. And I open my eyes and I start my day. And then when my day doesn't go according to that plan, I'm like, oh yeah, that doesn't feel like that felt this morning, 
what can I do to get it back to that feeling? And then I start making better decisions that lead to more feelings of feeling like that. And then eventually in time, you live in that place. My life is joyful. My life is abundant. I have opportunity at every turn. I'm constantly having people either call me to pay me money to work with them, support their company or to do something. Or somebody calls me and says, I would like to put this thing together. Would you be interested in doing it? And I'm always in the state of awe of like, man, my life is just so easy. It's so amazing. It's so abundant. Things just constantly fall into place for me. But it, that didn't happen overnight. That happened because I started to believe that that was possible. I started to look for evidence that that was possible. And then I celebrated it every time it happened. And then I created a belief system that that just happens for me. I did this thing and it sounds ridiculous, but every time my cell phone rang, I would say to myself that I was in a state of just receiving opportunities. There were no opportunities at the time, Jill. People were <laughs> calling me for money or people were calling me for problems or whatever it was that was going on in my life and in my business at the time. But I would just say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for all the incredible opportunities. Then I would answer the phone. And then I created a habit of always looking for it that eventually the problems stopped coming and the opportunities started to come. And so you've got to ask yourself, was it because of the meditation? Was it because I set this intention? Was it because of all the little things I did and stacked? And I couldn't tell you which one was the, the tipping point, but I can tell you now I'm never going to stop doing any of them because my life is so good. Why would I ever want to go back? Oh, I love this. Um, so where does somebody start? Like, I, I know we've kind of talked, this whole conversation has been about that, but like, just really like somebody's um, in the beginning stage and they're like, ready. Number one, like, do they call a coach? What if they can't afford a coach? Where do they, is, are they, is there a book you can suggest or somebody to follow? Do you have any suggestions? I have so many suggestions and, and I think I'm going to answer your question this way and say that I believe that every single person on the planet finds information when they're ready to find it. And so if there's a book that lands on your desk, if there's a book recommendation that somebody makes and you hear it once or twice, pay attention because those are little nudges that are being put forward and they're going to give you the thing that you need in that moment the most. If you're listening to this interview, and you're wanting to ask yourself, how can I start taking more control? And you've liked anything that I've had to say today. Maybe you don't 100% believe it. Maybe you're not sure it's possible for you, but you think it's possible for me. There's just possibility. And so you're opening the door to what could that look like? I have two books on my website that I give away for free. So go to rudyricksteins.com. I would recommend you put it in the show notes and anyone can go and grab those books and they can start to learn some of the processes. If you don't have the money to hire a coach, then I've got a course on my website. And for a couple hundred bucks, you can learn the science and the research behind the power of meditation. I have meditations you can go and download and then you can start practicing each and every single day in the confines of your own home and you can start stacking your own success, your own evidence. If you have a company and you want to bring this into your organization, there are people like me that go into businesses and teach people how to be able to do this and to take control of their lives. I just want to remind every single listener that you are first and foremost a human being. You are this powerful, brilliant, benevolent being that has come here to have, to be, to do. You are in your divinity meant to be abundant. You are meant to be powerful. You are meant to be free. And if in any area of your life, you don't feel like you are abundant, you don't feel like you're free, you don't feel like you have opportunity, 
It's because you've placed a prison around your mind of what you believe is possible. And the only reason you have or you do not have something is because you don't believe that you are worthy of having it. And if you could start to believe that you're worthy of it, if you could start to tap into the emotions, change your physiological state that you believe it's possible, it will come to you and it will be beautiful and miraculous and as divinely led as you were divinely placed here. Because this world is meant to be abundant and joyful. And you have to make that switch. You have to mentally say, I'm going to stop dropping the anchors into the past. I'm going to start anchoring myself into a potential future. I'm not going to say it can only come this way. It can come in a myriad of ways and then start waiting expectantly for all of it to come to you. And that's where the magic happens. And so I hope I've answered your question because you know there is a thousand books that could get you there. Mine don't have to be the ones that get you there. Find anything that just sparks an interest in you because the moment something sparked in you, that means there's something there for you. Anyone that hears this episode, they found it for a reason. They came to it because there was value for them in it. It would be something Joel said, something I said, something they hear before or after. There is value in every single moment, but we need to be present to that information and then we need to do something with it. So this is a great interview. It was an amazing interview and I thank you for it, but it has no value if somebody doesn't take the information and apply it in some way, shape or form. And so that's really the point is take something you've learned, action it every single day. Mm -hmm. Well, the universe puts things in front of you at the most divine moments, right? That's how it works. So just pay attention when, when God gives you something, pay attention to it and take the opportunity. And speaking of opportunities, this was such a great opportunity for me and I'm forever grateful for it. And I just, I need to thank your wife too, for putting you on that stage and empowering you that day, because you are going to be in front of 80,000 people over and over and over again, because of the lives that you're going to change, it's going to change the world. So thank you for that. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your platform and your beautiful words. You know, you started off today just filling my heart with so much love and joy and gratitude. And then you ended by filling my heart with so much love, joy and gratitude. So thank you so much for holding that vision for me. And I hold the vision for you and for everybody else that hears this, that uh, they live their highest and their greatest potential. I have seen thousands and thousands and thousands of people's lives change in an instant because they started looking at possibility and stopped looking at limitation. And so my wish for you and for everybody else that uh, hears this is that they start to anchor themselves in the possibility from my heart to yours. I love you. Thank you so much. And I hope you have an amazing day. Thank you. I love you, Rudy. Thank you so much.